Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter. Today, I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Andrew Glaze. Man, Andy is something else. So for those of you who know, will already recognize that Andy is something else. I heard about what he was up to actually not that long ago. He has run now what is 180 straight weeks where each one of those weeks he ran a minimum of 100 miles. So at no point during that time was there a week where he was not at 100 plus miles per week. So when I first heard this story, I thought to myself, well, you know, I've done quite a few hundred mile yearly averages to the point where I probably have a, a multiple years in a row where I averaged 100 miles per week. But with that, you can take a full week off. You just have to average that many amount of miles per per day in order to get to that and then it just it works itself out but to get up and do it every week with no week under there is a fair bit more impressive in terms of just like the level of commitment to that particular task it's a totally different goal to be honest than anything i've ever considered but when i looked at it I got even more impressed the more I looked into it because it's not just him waking up every day thinking okay I'm going to get to exactly 100 point zero zero miles every week and just do everything he can to kind of like manicure this exact hundred mile week so that he can kind of rinse and repeat it's sort of a secondary goal for him it just it's definitely something he's thinking about and he's actively doing but he's not doing it at the expense of other areas that he enjoys within the sport so he's doing ultra marathons pretty frequently and he's doing crazy stuff within ultra marathoning not just like you know, 50K here, 50K there to hit his mileage. He, we talked about this on the episode, but he had a, a week where he did the Canyons 100 mile, which is on a weekend day. And then he flew from where that is, kind of in the Sacramento area, over to Phoenix and began, which I believe is on a Tuesday morning, the Cocodona 250 mile. So he had basically one day off in between finishing one full day where he was just able to kind of like get his stuff together where he wasn't like traveling between those two events. So he had over 350 miles in just that week alone and then was able to manage to get himself gathered enough to return home and complete another 100 mile week. And you know, I had said so many questions that beget more questions with a guy like Andy that I had to get him on the show and just chat about it. He's also got a popular Instagram page and TikTok page where he documents a lot of his stuff. So if you're interested in following his journey and getting to know him, because he does a really nice job of, I think, just kind of highlighting his his existence, so to speak, on his Instagram page that I would encourage following him there. Uh, links to that are in the show notes if interested. Uh, yeah, so let's chat up to Andy, figure out what makes him tick, what gets him going, and uh, all the things that go into this 100-mile week streak. Before we get rolling with Andy, I actually have some very exciting news. I am currently in the process of building out a podcast studio. So this has been something I've been thinking about and wanting to do since Nicole and I moved to Austin. Austin just has a lot of opportunities for in-person podcast interviews. And as someone who's been a guest and hosted a podcast for quite some time now, 
I recognize that there is a big value add in doing in-person interviews as much as possible. So that's an element that I would like to add to the show on a more frequent basis and having a studio here in Austin and access to a lot of interesting people, both passing through as well as living here is going to make that a reality. And I have the space, I have the equipment. It's just a matter of me getting it set up, learning it and getting that ball rolling. So you should see episodes in the new studio with the new equipment and an increase in in in-person stuff well before the end of the year. And I hope you enjoy that extra add add to the podcast going forward. Also, if you want to sign up to enter a raffle in which you can win a free 30-minute consultation with me, you can do that quite easily, actually. All you have to do is when you listen to an episode, share it on your social media platforms and tag me. Tag me because if you don't, then I might not see it. If I don't see it, I can't enter you into the raffle. But if you do do that... I will enter you in the raffle at the end of each month. I'm going to draw a winner and announce at the beginning of the next month. So we're coming up on the end of August here and about to start September. So that first episode I launch in September, I'll announce the August winner, which means you still have some time to enter the August raffle by following me on Instagram at Zach Bitter, on Twitter or X, whatever you call it these days, at ZBitter, Facebook at ZBitter Endurance. Like I said, tag me so I see it and I'll enter you into that raffle. If you go to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO, you will see the landing page for the show, which has a catalog of all the previous episodes, links, details, and everything that goes into that. There's also links there to the show Patreon page, which does give you access to early release, ad-free, intro-free episodes. So if you want to get straight to the show, get early access, and support the podcast, that's a great option. There's also other support options on that website, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. I've been fortunate this year to have two long-term supporters of the podcast, and those supporters are Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. Element Electrolytes has a wide variety of options in terms of their flavors from citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango chili, raw and flavored. All of them boast 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. They have a risk-free scenario going on or if you buy it don't like it they will refund you and you don't even got to return the box they also have an option where on your first purchase if you go to them through drinklmnt.com forward slash hpo you will get a free sample pack with your first purchase which will allow you to try all those flavors i mentioned and decide which ones you like you don't like and focus in on what you want to include For me, I like the chocolate in my coffee in the mornings. A lot of times before a hot, longer training session, I'll use some of the more fruity flavored ones during training sessions or if I'm trying to catch up on electrolytes this time of year when it seems like fluid intake is at an all-time high. Also, those of you who've been listening to this for a while probably recognize that this year I started including some exogenous ketones into my training and racing protocol. One of the reasons for that is the research is just piling up and it's getting more specific to endurance stuff too, and even performance. I've had podcast episodes in the past where I've talked about this and have sort of covered and followed the evolution of exogenous ketone research. One thing I did learn though is not all ketones are created equal. First of all, you want to know like if it's a ketone ester. And second of all, you want to know actually what that formula is because of all the formulas out there, there's only one that has really been the center of all the research that shows any of the performance and recovery benefits. And that is by a company called Delta G. 
And if you've heard that name before, it's probably because they received DARPA grants to pursue that formula and really, really optimize it. They have 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. There's two really interesting new ones that are relevant to not just endurance athletes, but ultra marathon runners. And I found it compelling enough to try it out. The other unique thing about Delta G is they have a situation where if you go to their website, deltagketones.com, you can sign up for a free consultation and they will talk to you specifically about where it might fit into your lifestyle. So take me, for example, I have key training sessions every now and then. And before a big workout key training session, I'll have one bottle of Delta G performance 20 minutes before, and then I'm done. If it's a race day, I'll do that same protocol 20 minutes before, but then I'll just have another bottle of Delta G performance every three hours during that event. And that's the protocol that I built out and have tested so far this year. So like I said, if you want to check them out, head over to deltagketones.com. Links for both them and Element are in the show notes as well as on the website at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I should ask before we get rolling, do you prefer Andrew or Andy either? Uh, or? I, nor I normally go by Andy, but uh, okay. my, my name's Andrew. So it, it, I mean, either or just not Drew. You, you respond to both is what you're saying? I do. Yes, <laughs> yes, I do. Awesome, Andy. Well, no, this is going to be a fun interview. I, uh, I listened to your podcast episode with Jeremy Miller and I listened to that kind of alongside really like doing a dive into kind of your Instagram page and just everything that you're up to. So I was kind of learning on what I would call fast forward about what you've been up to the last few years. And it's just such a fun story. I couldn't wait to get you on the podcast to chat about it a little more. Well, thanks for having me. Here I am. Yeah. So for those tuning in that don't know who you are, you've got this, this, like this catchphrase, I guess that is just I think it's a it's a it's one that gets your attention. And then from my opinion, once the attention is gotten, there's so much more into it that you just kind of keep going down the rabbit hole, so to speak. So you have this streak where it's a hundred miles a week streak, right? And yeah. how long has that been going for? Just finished 179 weeks. 179 so, weeks. Start, yeah. Starting so 180. You're over three years now, right? Then my mask. Yeah. 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 Over, over three, years. three years. Yeah. Getting close to three and a half. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 That would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. So it's just like probably one of those, it has to be one of those things where when you started it, you didn't really envision probably three and a half, almost years later, you'd be sitting here talking about this hundred mile per week streak. I imagine there's not like a, a magic number you're targeting or anything like that. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I did it like in 2000, I think 18 or 17, I did 28 weeks straight, but I was like just hitting a hundred miles. Exactly. Um, and then I had a bad race and it killed the streak and, uh, didn't, didn't do it obviously for a while. I mean, I, I always kind of do high mileage, but yeah, I didn't, this streak when I started it, you know, I didn't, I had no idea I'd be still, still running hundred miles a week. Mm -hmm. It's, it seems pretty bizarre. Do you find that makes it more sustainable? Just the, the idea that you're kind of almost just, well, let's just do this next week. And there's not this like kind of grand theme to it. Well, I mean, I guess there's a grand theme to it to some degree, but that sort of just came yeah. along for the ride of, as it kind of progressed. But I mean, I don't feel any like external or pressure to like perform every week or if like, you know, I, I mean, I, I think someday it'll, it'll, 
it'll like end, you know, I'll get injured or like something will happen dramatically where I, I won't be able to continue it. So I, I feel like I've already emotionally prepared for that. And like, you know, I mean, I'm still going to keep running hopefully. So I just won't be doing hundred mile weeks, but um, yeah, I mean, here I am, it's still going. So, I mean, I'm just going to embrace it while, while it's going on. Yeah, I was trying to think of something to compare the end of that to. And given the timeline, I was thinking like, it might kind of feel like high school or college graduation or something like that, where it's like, okay, you know, there's going to be like this chapter turning aspect to your life where things are just going to be a little bit different or different enough where you'll kind of like, there'll be just a different kind of aura to the day of how things kind of come and go and things like that to, to the degree where now you've gotten so far into this, I would imagine like when it does end, it's going to feel like there's like a, a life shift to some degree uh, in terms of just kind of like what you even think about maybe from, from one minute to the next. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I managed to like fit a bunch more stuff in there. I mean, I still race a lot and, you know, do a lot of ultras and like a lot of adventures and stuff. So like, I mean, the streak is just, to me, it's just like one aspect of me, but it's not necessarily like, I don't know. I mean, it's people want to talk about it, but it's not like what defines me as like a runner or, or like a person. Um, to me, it's just, I mean, it's something I've been doing for a couple of years, but like, you know, I'm 45. So I've done a lot of things in 45 years and this is just three of them. So, yeah. um, and I've run a lot of miles. I, I'm, I was looking at my Strava the other day and I'm like almost, almost to 50,000 miles on Strava. Wow. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it, I mean, it's cool, but it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not the end all be all of who I am as a runner or who I am as a person. So, yeah, I'm glad you said that because I just actually interviewed Brad Stolberg last week and he's, he's really big into just kind of that whole, just how you mentally take in those things you're doing, these goal setting things and how you process them and how you kind of compartmentalize them and essentially trying to unpack in a way where like life is about changes. And since we know that's the reality, we need to position ourselves in a way where when those changes occur, it's not like the rug just got pulled out from under you. And one of the things he mentioned was basically spot on what you did. He was like, have different rooms or compartments in your life where if one of those doors gets closed, whether it's temporarily or permanently, you've got all these other rooms to go into. So you don't feel like your identity has just been stolen from you. And it sounds like you've more or less, you've in, like, you've engulfed yourself with just the process of running the community of running and things like that to where like, yeah, when you do get to a point where it's like, this is no longer a target for per week, you have like all these other interesting things that you can kind of just focus your energy and time on. And, and who knows, ch- chances are you'll come up with something else that'll be fun target. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, um, I'm trying to just do fun stuff all the time, stuff that interests me, stuff that like I like. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, life's so short, I feel like you should do things that make you happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- this makes me happy. So that's why I'm doing it. But um, everybody's got to find their own happy. I'm- yeah. I, I, I do want to, before we dive into just like, all the details of the streak, because I think the details are what makes it interesting and kind of highlight what you said now, where when I first heard of it, I was thinking more along the lines of that you were probably a little more strategic about just don't do too much any one week, time things out just right so that it it's just like, like a mistake won't cost the streak. But then when I start getting into your story, that's 
absolutely not the case. It's clear <laughs> that you have other priorities and the streak is just kind of like a part of what you're doing or you just wouldn't be doing some of the things you have. And we'll jump into some of those, but I, I want to rewind even further back and just kind of get a grasp as to like, what got you interested in running originally? Because you don't just wake up one day and start banging out hundred mile weeks. I mean, originally um, I got into running cause I took a class on exercise science and I took that class because I was like super out of shape and unhealthy and was like, you know, looking, looking for something to change my life. I was having anxiety and depression. I was young in my young twenties. And, um, and this is back before the internet, back before we could just like, you know, go on a, like, listen to a podcast and figure out what to do, you know? And so I took a college class to try to learn more about like how to be healthy. And, um, in that class I had to run a mile and a half and, uh, never, quit running since then it's been over 20 years and uh obviously i started you know smaller couple miles here and there and it, it like gradually built um but i mean i mean that's it was essentially just like me at a crossroads in my life where i was like unhappy and i was trying to like figure out a way to like you know find happiness or be happy or you know not feel the anxiety and depression that i was feeling because i was like you know un unhealthy and unhappy so, mm -hmm. yeah. So your why was at least at an early stage was essentially like, I don't know. I don't appreciate the way I feel right now. And this is going to be a vehicle to change that. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and somebody basically said like, Hey, you know, you're like 24 years old, like she's probably working out, you know? And, you know, I never really thought about it. You know, the, you know, before the internet was like, so like, prevalent like it was hard to figure out like the right things to eat the right things to do like unless you were like raised a certain way um you know i just didn't know i didn't i didn't know that like exercise was you know connected to to mental health or anything like that i i just you know back then you know if you were unhappy that you you took prozac or like mm -hmm. you know something like that that was like you know everyone's solution that and I was not a big fan of like, you know, taking drugs to like make myself feel better. So, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm super happy that I found it and I'm super happy that I went down that route. Um, and it's, it's been a long, you know, slow, slow grind to where I am now. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't just start running hundred mile weeks. I mean, I, I probably went, you know, eight or nine years before I ran a hundred mile a week. Um, yeah, you know, I can remember when that was like a big thing, right? You run your first hundred mile week and you're like, feel super accomplished because it's, it's, it's hard to run a hundred miles in a week. Um, but you know, now it's, now it's my life. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say that too. Cause I think I probably had a fairly similar timeline in terms of arriving at my first hundred, hundred mile week. And it was one of those things where like, you know, I've done countless of them since then, but for, for, for obvious reasons, that one stands out as being the first. And I, th I think I was doing like three runs a day to get to it. It was just like this like, yeah. kind of weird goal at the time where it just made sense to do a, a core run in the morning and then a couple really short ones in the, in the afternoon, just to kind of push the mileage up a little bit to the point where the average is going to come out to almost exactly at a hundred. Exactly. Yeah. That is exactly what I did too. And it seemed like so much at the time. I mean, it still seems yeah. like a lot, but but uh, a lot, a lot more back then. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But. 
Yeah. And I mean, what you say is so true too. It's like nowadays, if you don't feel good about, about, about yourself or about anything, and you get some advice from a person about like, oh, you know, take this pill or do this thing. You can hop online and just check and see like, is this what other people are doing? What are the other options? And regardless of whether that person gave you good advice or not, you're going to walk away with probably dozens of potential options to go to. So like, yeah, it's a different world now. And I think like, you're a little older than me, but I'm old enough to remember just kind of like the when the internet was essentially non-existent or when it was starting to kind of pick up momentum, it still was kind of a secondary tool versus just your interpersonal experiences or, you know, actually going to the library and checking out a book. <laughs> kind of a yeah, thing. I mean, I, I, that's what I have to used to have to do. So I mean, like, you know, I had a college degree and I went to a community college to take the exercise science class just because I was like, well, where else am I going to learn anything? You know, like I just went to my local community college and I signed up for an exercise science class and just took it. Yeah. Did you do sports I mean, in high school? Uh, I played football um, till I was about 16. So, I mean, athletic in that sense, but not like not a runner. I mean, running was punishment in football. Yeah. You know, when we got in trouble, it was like we ran. And so it was never like something that I enjoyed doing. I remember in college talking to some kid in one of my classes and he told me that he would wake up early and run. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? You like, like, I like could not like wrap my head around that people did that. Um, so yeah, it was like very foreign to me, like the whole idea of, of running or doing it at all, like until I got into my twenties. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think about just the the perceptions that that you've had throughout the course of it. I, I had a similar experience to what you just described, where I was talking to my 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 soon to be college cross country coach because I was just like I didn't run track and cross country my freshman year. Then I, the second year, I decided, well, they've got a cross country and track team. I'm gonna be here anyway. I did all right at running in high school. So I was like, let's just see what this is all about. So I met with a coach and, and he basically just outlined kind of the protocol of like, though the incoming freshmen are doing like 50 miles a week, sophomores are doing like 60 juniors and seniors, 70, 80. And sometimes the higher mileage guys will hit 90 to hundred miles in the summer during their training. I just remember thinking, there's no way I'm ever going to run 90 miles in a week. Cause my mind was like, that's, that's I'm like six times 15 is 90. So if I have a rest day, that's, yeah that's crazy (laughs) it just didn't make sense I was like there's no way and then it's like here we are today you know I'm running 100 mile races and things like that it's just your your reality kind of shifts as you kind of progress through things and 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 one thing I'd like to talk to you about too because it sounds like there was at least somewhat of a natural progression here where you have that kind of mindset of like this is weird why would I do it to where you are today uh you sort of from from my experience like to end up being where you are from a running standpoint, it almost has to be something where like you learn these little lessons that kind of nudges you a little further. And then you look back on it when you're where you're at and it's just like, how did I get here? And then you you realize it was really just like, Oh, I normalized this. And then I just took one more step and then I normalized that. And then I just took one more step and then you end up, well, most people don't end up doing what you're doing, but, uh, is that kind of how it did? Or were there like big jumps where you just decided like, I'm really going to go for it here and reach for the extreme. And, and that's how you got here. Or was it more kind of just 
a little bit every year and now you're at this this streak that you've been putting together um i a little of both i mean it was definitely a very slow progression up until like i i did rate you know races but not very many and i got up to like a half marathon i really like that distance and i did that for quite a while and then um i never really got into the marathon distance i've only ever done one um just because i I, I ran or I read Murakami's book on running. I don't know if you've read that. I can't think of what it's called right now, but he basically describes the New York City Marathon. And so I like, I was like, oh, that sounds fun. So I applied and I got in the first year, oh. which is like, I guess unheard of because New York's so hard to get into. So I ran New York City Marathon. It's the only one I've ever run. But um, I was, I was, I got into like those tough mutters, like the obstacle course racing kind of, um, I think a little bit because I'm a firefighter. And so like we do a lot of um, sort of like not races, but like circuit training where we do um, like workouts with um, all our gear on and doing stuff like, you know, carrying ladders and sledgehammer and, you know, all this sort of like going upstairs and pulling up hose and, and doing all this stuff. So I kind of got into that like circuit training type workout. And so like, with the obstacle courses, like I sort of thought of the obstacles as like similar things that I'm doing at work. And, and I, and I got really into those. And then, um, I signed up for one of the, a 24 hour one. And so I was like, Oh, I'm going to have to learn how to run like a lot further than what I've been doing. Cause like an obstacle course race is like, I think 13 miles. Mm -hmm. So, um, I kind of jumped from like the half marathon to the ultra because like I all of a sudden was like, I'm going to have to run for 24 hours. And, and uh, so I did a couple 50 Ks to get ready for the obstacle course racing and then just decided I like the running aspect better and <laughs> just stuck with ultras and, and dropped the obstacle course racing. So um, it was kind of like slow up to the half marathon. And then it was like a quick jump to ultras. And then once I like, discovered ultras and trail running and all that stuff then i pretty much have just stuck with that ever since but mm -hmm. e even in the ultras it was like a slow progression i did a bunch of 50ks and i did a bunch of 50 milers i did a couple hundred k's and then then finally progressed to the 100 miler um i didn't just jump right into like the you know the big the big boys mm -hmm. from the beginning yeah. Yeah. And that's what I think got me extra intrigued with kind of what you're doing too, was you, it's kind of back to what we were saying before. This wasn't something that you necessarily like sat down and thought to yourself, well, if I just hit exactly hundred miles every week, how long can I do this for? And just looking for this, this, this streak that will never be broken or that will stand out you kind of found yourself in a position to where that was an option and it was somewhat through ultra marathon running. What, uh, what was like the first, what was the first hundred miler you did? Uh, I did Angeles crest. Oh, wow. Which, yeah, so you, you weren't messing around. Then. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I actually got a sub 24 at Angeles crest, which is like, I trained so hard for that race and I'm like super proud of it. So I don't, sub 24. Cause you get a actual silver belt buckle and it's, you know, um, yeah, I, I really, I, I put a lot of effort into running my first hundred. I didn't like, um, skimp on the training. So, um, yeah, that was my first, like, I, I like mountains. I run a lot of mountains. And so when I first got into ultras, like my eyes were mostly on like mountain races 
And then since then, you know, I've done a bunch of other stuff like Rocky Raccoon and I've done, you know, uh, jackpot stuff like that. I've done a couple looped courses uh, beyond limits where I, I ran for 72 hours around a two mile loop, stuff like that. But in general, I, I like I like the big mountain races because um, I love mountains. Yeah. And that's that's kind of where I want to go with like the next kind of topic here is just how you kind of weave these two things together because I mean when people hear you talking about like 24 hour sub 24 hour at Angeles Crest and running ultra marathons and then the mountains you have like the you don't get credit for vertical on your 100 mile streak so right yeah it's, it's bonus it's like you're gonna work harder for that mile sometimes probably twice as hard for that one mile and I find that so interesting because when you look at just how these, these weeks actually piece together, there is that trend line of just like, you don't really care so much about it as much as you do just kind of doing it. And sometimes that ends up being like these insanely aggressive weeks versus what I would imagine. There's probably somewhere you do probably get awfully close to just hitting a hundred miles, but, but we can chat about that. But I want to kind of start it with the one that really stood out to me, I think you probably know where I'm going to this was you did the, the Coke or you did the, um, the Canyons hundred mile, which yeah. for those listening, it's not an easy hundred mile by any stretch of the imagination. You go through the Canyons, which is the hardest section of the Western States 100 course. And a few days later, you stepped on the starting line of the Cocodona 250, which I would say, like, I'm, I'm talking somewhat out of school here as someone who has never done one of the 200 milers, but I would I'd actually be interested in your perspective with this on, as far as the 200 plus milers go in the United States, I would say that one's probably the most difficult. And you kind of doubled those two events up where within a week, essentially you did both of those totaling 350 miles. Yeah. And 57,000 feet of vert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you use the, 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 I, I don't know how, how someone came up with this, but they'll say sometimes like, like for every thousand feet of climbing, that's kind of like running an extra mile. Uh, I think it's probably more dependent on how used you are to doing climbing versus how new you are to it in terms of how that actually plays out from like your body's exposure to it. But yeah, if you're looking at it like that, then like, you know, you're over 400 at that point. Right. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it was, uh, I mean, it was, it was basically something I came up with just cause I'm, I got a little greedy and I wanted to do both races and they happened to line up. So Canyons was Friday, Saturday, and then Cocodona was Monday. So I had Sunday off and I figured, you know, I'd just try to make it work. And, uh, like I'm, you know, like anything in life, I'm like a planner. Mm -hmm. I obviously have to like, you know, my calendar, everything is very tight and, uh, so I just really planned it exactly how I would need to do it and uh, was able to like pull it off. It, I mean, it was very, very challenging. And and I, I, it's hard for me to say because I haven't run into the other 200 mile races. Um, Candace's races in general, like tend to be during fire season, which mm. is when, you know, California burns down and it's hard for me to get off work. So I haven't run any of her races, but um, I am I am going to do Moab this year. So, uh, I'll have a better understanding of her races, but I would say that Cocodona is, is a pretty dang hard race. Um, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, I know you've talked, I've listened to you and Mike McKnight talk about it. And like, you know, Mike and I have, have raced a lot together and his, his description of it is, is pretty, pretty accurate as a very, very challenging race, especially the first like 70 miles. 
Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it puts some hair on your chest. For sure. It just looks to me, I mean, I was out there for the, I wasn't running it, but the inaugural event when they first did it, obviously the first year event is going to always have some like learning to it, regardless of how good of a race director you are. And, you know, just the uniqueness of that, where you start in Phoenix and in Flagstaff, yeah, you know, the time of year is it's plenty hot in Phoenix. They, that first year, they had some fires where they had to, they, they couldn't get as much supplies in. So that first 50 K was almost self-supported. They barely had any support out there. So it was a situation where like, you literally could not carry enough water. So I think so many people just kind of like got themselves really far behind really early in this race. And then you have to try to dig yourself out of that hole as you're covering another 200 plus miles. And I think they've probably refined that to some degree since then, but I'd be curious about your experience at, at Coca-Dona just because with the timeline you had that Sunday off probably just felt like a long aid station stop more or less comparatively when you look back at it. Yeah. I mean, it was hard because, um, so I, I flew to Sacramento and then I had to fly to Phoenix. So I had to bring all my drop bags and everything with me. I did both races solo and uncrewed. Mm -hmm. So I had to be totally dependent on all my drop bags and everything, especially at Cocodona. I have done Cocodona all three years. I'm, I'm one of the few people, there's only eight of us that have done it all three years and I've done it all three years solo. So that first year you're talking about, yes, I can confirm it was, uh, I ran out of water just like Mike, um, it was what I would do is I would hold water in my mouth for like 10 minutes before I would swallow it because I was so low on water and I didn't know when I was going to fi find some that uh, that's how I survived that first like 30 miles was just by holding water in my mouth so that I um, so I, my mouth wouldn't dry out. Mm -hmm. I, I know it sounds crazy, but we were, we were everyone was like dying out there. I mean, people were digging in the mud and like um it was, it was really wild, but, um, sorry, back to Coco canyons. Um, so like, yeah, I flew into Phoenix and then I had all my drop bags, but then like, there's certain things I like in my drop bags that, you know, you can't really fly with. Like I like sparkling water and like, I like avocados. So then I had to like, you know, grocery shop on my one day off and like, you know, fill my drop bags with all the things I needed to do and get them all organized. And then I had to drive them to the you know, the start line and drop them off before the race the next day. So it was a busy, busy one day off, um, to get everything ready for the race. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I basically only got like to sleep that night and then, um, yeah, I was, I, I started the race pretty tired, like sleepy tired, not like physically tired. Right. I just, I just didn't get enough sleep, you know, like after a hundred milers, especially cause so canyons was, um, it was unusually hot that weekend and it was like, like a hundred degrees mm. and six, 65% of the, um, the race DNF'd because it was just like so hot. I mean, I have never run Western States, but the, you know, those can how hot those canyons get. And like, it was, it was really, really bad. I mean, I, I, I've not, not as bad as your race this weekend, but you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I I'm a decent hot runner as far as like being able to like manage and like know how to like handle it. Um, and I have my, my, I have my protocols as well, but like, I was also in like that mode where it was like, I had to survive because I knew I had to do Coca Dona. 
So it kind of like shifted, like I, I didn't push myself quite as hard as I, like I could have, because I, I, I needed to leave a little bit in the tank mm-hmm. for Cocodona. So, um, that race took me like 28 hours to finish and then had to fly to Phoenix and, and do that whole thing. So I, I, I was up 41 hours total before I went to sleep and then had that one day off and then started Cocodona. So it was, it was challenging. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things that could go wrong with that situation. And it sounds like that day between almost made you basically be behaving as if you were crewing somebody like it's inevitably you're crewing yourself to some degree in terms of prepping but like from I'm just trying to wrap my head around experiences I've had that could reflect on that in any capacity and the way I would think about that would be like running a hundred mile race then crewing for somebody for the next day at a race and then jumping in a 250 miler right after that is kind of how my mind processes that and it's just yeah the sleep deprivation I just just like the the fact that there's no real way to stay hydrated during a race like you did at canyons and the timeline it takes to really rehydrate after an experience like that, you had to have been coming into Cocodona relatively compromised to the rest of the field, even from just a hydration standpoint. And then the nature of that event being what it is in the beginning, being kind of maybe a little more challenging from a logistics standpoint. That must have just been, uh, you may have benefited from your first year experience because you probably knew in the back of your mind, it won't be that bad from, from, a, right. from a course. Well, luckily, luckily year three, um, because we've gotten all this, the rain and, and, and snow and everything, like they had running water um, in that first 30 miles. So I was able to filter a bunch of water. Um, and so I actually didn't run out of water this year because I filtered so much water Um I, I think I drank like, I think I six and a half liters of water in that first 30 miles. Wow. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, a ton of water, you know, but like, I mean, that's literally how hot it was and exposed and, you know, I, I had access to water. So I just like, I was like, I'm going to drink, I'm going to be overhydrated in this situation. But I think also the hard part is, and, and I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this after a hundred milers, like you do, or, or and maybe you don't, but like, I always am like super hungry after a hundred miler. Like mm-hmm. I like, a calorie deficit, you know, whatever, like you you can't eat as much as you burn in a hundred mile race. Even if you really want to, um, you inevitably lose, lose a couple pounds and sure. Part of it's dehydration, but also part of it is like, you need, you need more calories. So I was just trying to get as many calories in, in that one day as I could, but you just can't get enough in one day. It normally takes me like a week to get my body back into like, you know, where I've eaten enough and drank enough and everything to like continue on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, just going right into it, hungry and thirsty. Like it was, it was hard. Yeah. At that point you just have to be like, it's almost like a waste to drink plain water because it's like, there's no calories in there. So you may as well drink something that has calories. in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I was like, I did not eat healthy that one day I yeah. had off because I, I was like, you know, it doesn't matter. I didn't eat as many calories as I possibly can get into my body. You know, I was eating burritos and French fries in it and like, you know, just getting crazy. So, yeah, the, the closest perspective I think I've had from a story story listening standpoint is I had a series of episodes where I was talking to people who've done these long type of like long stretch things like transcontinental run 
um, Appalachian Trail, that sort of thing, where you're kind of in a similar boat where the the calorie output is so high, it's almost impossible to stay on top of it. So you have to get as creative as possible with finding ways to like make the package the same size, but have the calorie load increased by a lot. So you end up getting, yeah, get, getting quite quite creative with oils and things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like eating just straight peanut butter and yeah. like weird nuts and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of my go-tos for that is I'll have like a, a half empty jar of like some sort of nut butter. And then I'll just fill it up with like uh, extra virgin olive oil and stir that up. And then it becomes like almost a little more of a liquidy version of the nut butter, but it's also like even more calorie dense. And it's like, you can just, you can put in a ton of calories in a short period of time with that. Yeah, that's smart. That's, yeah, that's really, really smart. So I haven't had to use that to a large capacity compared to you, but if if, I'm sure you have some tricks like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's like, like I, pine nuts are like my like secret weapon because they have so many calories and they have protein and they have carbs and just a ridiculous amount of fat. So I, I love pine nuts and they're small, you know? So it's like, I think a cup of pine nuts is like a thousand calories. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Or it's like 990 or something like that. So it's things like, yeah, it can really uh, hold you over. No kidding. Yeah. From just a, just a, yeah, a packaging standpoint, like, yeah, you could like, you're on that plane heading to heading to Coca-Dona, put in a couple thousand calories if you had to, with not too much space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, it's, it's a horrible, I, I know, I know your um, eating style is, but my eating style is vegan. So it makes it like challenging to like travel and eat because finding vegan food is, uh, can be very, very hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at times yeah that's so. an interesting point too because like i wanted to ask you about that too because i know um yeah how, how long have you been vegan for um so i've only been vegan i think three or four years but i've been vegetarian for 20 so basically i was vegetarian and i got a dairy allergy so <laughs> when when Just you're vegetarian at and that you're, point yeah. yeah well it's like that's what you are right if you're a vegetarian with a dairy allergy you're vegan yeah so yeah I mean, it's, it's like not any more complicated than that but uh yeah so um yeah i haven't had any meat or meat products in like 20 20 something years but it works for me i don't preach it and i don't push it on people but you know it's just it's what works for me yeah well i mean i love it because i think what I find ends up happening with a lot of this stuff is like you have with, with the food environment we have, you can make most things work without too much restriction. Although, I mean, there's a logistical issue, obviously where like, you know, you're, especially in a situation where you're like with, with that, with that race back-to-back races and things like that. But generally speaking, it's like, you know, it's not overly restrictive to have, some restriction element to your diet, given the amount of access to food we have. And then it becomes a question, I think, in a lot of people's eyes of just like, well, what's, what's optimal versus the other, or what is something that I can stick to versus something else. And it's like, at the end of the day, I just find like, if I want to find someone who's thriving on a vegan diet or on a low carb diet or on like a a high sugar diet, it's like, I can find that, that anecdote out there. And it's like, so that what that tells me is like, these things work if they're done right. And then it's just finding like, what, like, like, would you say, like, what is going to work with my lifestyle in a way that uh, allows me to kind of bounce back and, and recover. So, 
uh, yeah, I mean, I, it'd be hard to argue against what you're doing nutritionally because it's like, what are you going to really, what are you really going to improve upon and from a recovery standpoint at this, at this stage in the game? Yeah. I mean, and I just think like, as long as you're responsible about your diet, like, I, I mean, I get blood work done pretty regularly, make sure everything's like doing okay. And I take a fair amount of supplements and, and everything just, just in case, uh, you know, I don't know if they work or not, I'm not a, not a scientist, but you know, just in case, like I take a bunch of stuff. So, but yeah, it works for me. Something's working, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I know a lot of people that go a lot of other ways, you know, I mean, Mike and I obviously are like polar opposites. Yeah. But, you guys you know, are definitely opposite it, but, of the spectrum. Yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, I'm like super happy that he's found his thing and I found my thing and it's, you know, I'm it's, it's all good. I think really like if I had to summarize it, it's like having enough structure where you're paying attention or that, that puts you in a position where you, you believe you should be paying attention is probably going to get you to where you want to be versus just sort of completely ignoring everything and just kind of going about eating whatever looks good at the time. Because it's like you, what you said, you're like, okay, so I, ha I know that I'm avoiding certain products intentionally, which means I should probably be aware of like my blood work and things like that. So just the fact that you're paying attention to that probably puts you in a position where you're making a lot of the right choices when you need to, in order to, to, to stay on top of that stuff versus just kind of blindly going about things. Well, and I think, I mean, if you look at like, I don't know, like we both, avoid processed foods like a lot of mm -hmm. processed foods so it's like you know i'm eating more fruits and vegetables you know you're eating more whole meat or meat or whatever but it's like all that processed foods what's so bad for us so mm -hmm. and then having to read labels and everything you're like what is all this crap in this food like i don't want to eat this you know <laughs> so um i also like i really try to avoid like sugar um i i love it but i <laughs> It's one of those things where I only let myself eat it if I've done an ultra. That's like my reward. Um, so like desserts and all that stuff. I don't eat anything like that ever unless unless I've run an ultra. So I, I think that, you know, can play a factor too, because I don't think sugar is really all that great for you. Yeah, it could be that like some of these polarizing approaches, it's more about what you're what they're all kind of eliminating versus what they're all bringing to the table, so to speak, although that probably is a component to it to some degree. Uh but yeah, I, I remember because like when you think of ultra marathoning, you get to that finish line and there is sort of that release of like, okay, it's done. It's over. I can just let loose for a couple of days. And I think that mentality just invites like just terrible food choices. <laughs> yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you go, you go and just like drink a bunch of beer and eat a bunch of pizza or something like that, or go to the fast food restaurant and just start going to town it's like that's probably going to behave differently for your recovery than say someone like yourself who you know goes into the grocery store and picks out the foods that you know have helped you get from one day to the next routinely over the last few years yeah i mean i, I do think that food does play a huge part in recovery so i mean and and i'm not saying vegan diet in general but just like good food whole food is like it's important so mm -hmm. Um, if you eat crap, you putting crap into your body. It's like, you're going to feel like crap. That's just, I mean, and there's a lot of crap out there. No doubt. So. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I, one other, and I think like just kind of continuing on with the Coca Dona and canyons, my, my first thought with that, and just with some of the other stuff you do, we don't even have to use that example is you finish something like that. Like my mind goes to like, all right, this is a great spot for an off season. 
And hundred miles, the, the way I look at it is like, if I were to try to average a hundred miles per week over the course of a year, that doesn't seem too unsustainable to me. I've done that quite a few times actually, but when you actually unpack it, it's like, yeah, I might have almost a full week where I'm not running. And then just the slight excess over the course of the weeks where I'm not in off season adds up to that average. Whereas you can't do that because your timeline sh- like resets every seven days, essentially. What is the protocol after a race like that in terms of kind of getting back to a point where now by the end of that next week, you're hitting that hundred mile number again? I mean, I guess it really depends on what day that the race ends. Um, you know, I mean, my, my week restarts on Monday. So like today is Monday and today is like the first day of the week. So last week I got 140 something miles. It's all gone now. And now I'm, now I'm on today. Um, I think Cocodona ended on Friday or something like that. So I had two days, but I, I ended up running a half marathon with my wife right after Cocodona. Um, <laughs> I paced her in the half marathon. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors include Element T electrolytes and Delta G ketone esters. Element T electrolytes can be found at drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and are offering a free sample pack with your first purchase. And Delta G ketones can be found at deltagketones.com. Also give them a follow at deltag.ketones on Instagram. I mean, normally ever since I've been doing hundreds, what I've done is I normally run like five miles within like 10 hours of finishing. Um, and, and and that can look a lot of different ways. Like, you know, I've run 17 hour hundred milers and I've run like 30 hour hundred milers. So it, it just depends on, you know, when I finish, um, I, I normally like eat, take a nap, and then I'll get up and, and I'll go for a short run. But, or if it's like I finish in the evening, then it's like I eat, I sleep, I wake up in the morning and I go for a run. Um, for, for me, I just find that like movement and like, it's very slow. Like, I think normally when I run after a hundred miler, like my first mile is like, like a 14 minute mile. And then my next mile is like a 13 minute mile. And then my next mile is a 12 minute mile. And it's like, as my body warms up, it's like, it, it slowly gets quicker and quicker. And then by the end, I like mile five, I'm feeling good, but I don't want to push it because I've just run a hundred miles. So mm-hmm. I normally like, well, you know, cut it uh, after five miles and then, um, you know, and then I just continue to progress. Like I find that my heart rate will stay slightly high for like three or four days after a hundred. And so I kind of monitor that because I do mostly like heart rate training and I don't like it when my heart rate's really high. So, um, you know, I look at that a lot. I, I don't want to like, you know, be redlining it or, you know, anything like that. And I don't want like, you know, if my heart's super stressed out, then, you know, I'll dial it back. But I mean, normally I feel pretty good after a couple of days and I can just continue on running 15 to 20 miles a day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's almost like, I mean, what you're doing is so different than what, anyone else is really doing and it's also (laughs) like obviously not studied where what I what I do kind of think about when I like just listen to you talk about kind of your your routine more or less is when I have talks to folks who've done these long haul stuff where they're they're sort of they're doing excessive amount of running for like a couple of months or something like that they oftentimes say like it's really that first week or so 
where it feels like you're kind of like gradually deteriorating and you're kind of getting to this mindset of like, how low can this get? And then somewhere around that first week ending, it starts to kind of trend back up where it's like your body almost says, all right, this is the reality. Let's start mobilizing things in a way that's going to make this as sustainable as possible. And then you're sort of just in cruise control as much as, I mean, as silly as that sounds, given what you're doing, but it's kind of what it is. It's like your body starts like making these adaptations where now that isn't something that is so off the charts undoable for it, where I would imagine even things like your heart rate would probably course correct a lot quicker than say like mine would if I did something similar. Yeah. And I think, you know, comparing to us, like you're obviously when you're racing, I think you're probably like redlining it a little bit more than I am. You know, I'm like, I'm chilling at zone two and just like trying to just maintain like a pace mm -hmm. that I can hold and just never get tired. Basically. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's the way I look at when I'm running. I'm like, I, I just want to be in this like comfortable zone where I'm just like, basically it can, can go as long as I want to go. If it's 350 miles, if it's 500 miles, whatever, I can just keep going forever. Um, and, and that's what I like. So that's what I do, but you know, it's, it's not super competitive or anything like that. I'm obviously going into all these races. I've done 11, I think 11 ultras this year. It's like a lot of times I go into them. I'm like, not hundred percent, maybe not even 80%. You know, it's like, it's a lot different than somebody who's only doing one or two ultras a year and like wanting to like podium or something like that. So. Yeah, it's definitely a different, it's a different why and it's a different, um, a different experience probably yeah you end up having a situation where it's like you're thinking about what's next to the degree of like the next day whereas i'm thinking about like well i'm probably going to have two weeks before i'm anywhere near training the way i did to prepare for this after i finish and that's just yeah puts you in a different a different place when you're looking to kind of empty the tank at the end of a race versus what you're trying to do to do do next um I did want to ask you about this because I think like the, the hundred mile week streak, like I said, has kind of an interesting, like kind of catch to it, but the beginning of the hundred mile week streak was actually like a 200 mile week streak. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did 18, 200 mile weeks in a row, which, uh, I, it started, I think I, I wanted to be like number one on Strava for like mileage. And so I got it and then I was like, I'm going to do it again. And I did it again. And then the third month I got, it was February. And so I only got like 900 and something miles, but I almost got three in a row. Um, but yeah, that was, that was excessive. I, when, um, Candace was doing her, you know, ultra every day, I like, like in my mind, I'm like, cause I'd been there. Mm -hmm. I knew what she was going through. I was like, yeah, this is, it's a lot of running. Mm -hmm. So and it was hard too, because, um, I had to juggle it with my job. And so, I wouldn't, I can run at work, which is like a cool aspect of my job, but I can't run like an ultra every day at work. So mm -hmm. I would get off and my wife was just like asking me, she goes, remember that, remember when you used to run like 45 miles a day? And I was like, yeah, I do remember <laughs> that. Cause like, I would have to, I'd have to make up the miles that I didn't get while I was at work. And I was literally, I would run like a 50 K or like 50 K to like 55, 60 K in the morning. And then I would run like another 10 miles at night or another, you know, something crazy. It was, it was so insane. My whole life was like literally just running, but you know, 
it was just another, it was, that was during COVID and, you know, all the races were closed and I was just looking for, you know, some way to challenge myself and, and, and I succeeded. It was, it was very hard. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess like when you, I'm guessing like during that phase, you maybe were doing a little less vert. So maybe that made it a little closer to what you're doing now when you have the vert in terms of just time spent. I don't know. I think I still was doing quite a bit of vert. <laughs> I, I, I live in it. I live in a hilly area and, and like, um, yeah, I, I get a fair amount of vert, like, you know, wherever. I, yeah. Just on default. So, um, yeah. And I, and I like running, I like running hills and, and, and all that stuff. So maybe not quite as much, but, uh, but still a fair amount. Um, yeah. Yeah. On, on that topic, I, I have to ask you, as somebody who enjoys the track side of ultra, you have a route that you do at work. Because, I mean, you're a firefighter, right? You can't really right. venture too far from the station because if the call comes in and you're five miles downtown, it's like you're not getting back anytime soon. So right. tell me about this firehouse loop that you got going on. Yeah, I mean, so it's like, I mean... <laughs> my station's downtown. So the streets are all gridded out. And then I also, I have like a university across the street uh, from my station. So I basically, you know, just run around my station, kind of just a, a box, you know, every once in a while I'll mix it up and do sidewalks. Cause like I can go through the university and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's pretty monotonous and, and uh, I have to hold a radio, which weighs like two pounds, you know, and then like, I got to listen to it make sure we're not getting any calls. So it's hard to disengage, you know, like when you're running and you're just like in the zone, it's hard for me to get in that zone because I have to listen for like all the calls and everything. But um, I've done, I can't even, I don't even know how many thousands of loops I've done, but a lot because, you know, I'll be at work for days and days at a time. So it's the only time I can get miles is doing these loops. So, but I have gotten a lot of, um, guys I work with to do them with me. So sometimes it's not as bad, you know, they'll, they'll go out and do like two or three miles with me. So, yeah, that is so how, how long is the loop? Well, I mean, it, it, it shifts a little bit. Yeah. yeah it, I can move it all around because of, because of like the way the university and everything is, but I stay within, I don't know, maybe like 0.2 miles from the station. I don't, I don't get any further than that normally. So sometimes I can like run up a street and then run back but just a little bit and mm. just it, it's a, it's a, it's like a city block loop, you know, it, it's not very, very big. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know that makes sense. It, it adds to the, the protocol of it. Like, so, I mean, being the fire, being a firefighter, I think I've coached a few firefighters in the past and it is an interesting lifestyle for ultra training. Cause you do get this sort of scenario where, finding time for the long run isn't always an issue because you have days off, but then, yeah, when you're on shift, you're kind of, you're, you're a little bit held to the, the parameters of that. So the way I always would structure that would be like, well, if we're going to, if we get to the long run development phase of training, we can really lean into it during that. Cause like, then I might want a very light couple of days after. So then when they're on, you know, when they're on the, on the clock and in the, in the firehouse, they're not doing nearly as much and they're kind of recovering from that. But I always think like, I don't know, maybe this is like a little bit of a, like a moral dilemma where it's like, if I have them do like a really aggressive couple of days before their shift and then they're out there at the firehouse limping around a bit, like that's not probably ideal for them either in terms of 
having to uh, essentially do their jobs. Have How much of a hurdle has that been? Or is that just something you've normalized over time where like you've got all this running related fatigue in your legs, but you're clearly capable of answering the call when it comes in. Is that something that you've had to really adjust to or? I mean, I think when I first started doing ultras, I'd be like way broken off for like an extended period of time, you know, but over the last couple of years, just with the higher volume and everything, it hasn't been as much of an issue. I think, you know, at the end of the day, adrenaline is an amazing drug and, um, you know, you might be limping around the station, but adrenaline, once the adrenaline kicks in, you're not limping around anymore. So it, it, it can get you through some, some amazing things. Um, but I, I think the hardest part with being a firefighter is just like the sleep patterns, you know, like, which, which does is an advantage for ultra running, but it's also like a disadvantage for training, you know, like I can, I can do minimal sleep like activities, like, but at the same time, like it's, it's not really good for my training. It's not good for my recovery. It's not good for my health, you know, all those type of things. Um, which, which plays into everything, but it's the profession I picked. And so, you know, there's, there's negatives and there's positives. The schedule is awesome, but the lack of sleep sucks. So. Do you, have you historically just not needed as much sleep as maybe the average person, or is that something where you still try to get to a certain number, even when you're kind of in the thick of it? I don't know. Historically, like when I was a kid, I used to sleep a ton, but as I've gotten older, I feel like I don't need as much, but I think a lot of it just has to do with, you know, years and years and years of unpredictable sleep schedules at work. You know, I mean, it, it's hard to describe, but like, you know, if, imagine like you go to bed and, you know, you're, you're, you're fast asleep and then like the bells go off and everything, you got to get up and you got to go run a call. And it could be somebody having a heart attack. It could be a car accident, it could be a fire, it could be a million things. You got to figure out how to like solve it. And then it's complicated. It's like a, you know, or maybe it's not complicated. Maybe it's just like old lady fell out of bed. Um, and then you have to go back to bed and you have to figure out how to fall back asleep after you've just had this adrenaline rush. And maybe you fall asleep for like 30 minutes and then the, the bells go off again and you have another situation you have to like figure out. And um, years and years of that, just it just messes with your sleep like pattern. Um, which is honestly why firefighters don't live as long, you know, I mean, sleep is a really important thing. So, um, it's, it's not the best thing, but, and I understand, I've read a lot of the books on sleep and I've listened to a ton of podcasts and I know how important it is, but it's just the reality I'm, I, I live in. So if you, if you want to be a firefighter, it's, you're not going to get good sleep. So. Yeah. Yeah, you sort of have to look at it as like, what are the things that are like, there's all these like rules or tricks to, you know, optimizing at the end of the day, I think like, the reality for most people like optimization at its finest is just not going to be a, an option on the table. So like, right. you have to look at what are the non negotiables that, that I need to work around. And once you kind of have those outlined, then you can start trying to optimize within that framework as best you can. And then you know, get about living essentially. Yeah. And I mean, the, the little things like when I'm at work, if, if we have downtime, like I'll take like a quick, like 30 minute nap or something to try to like refresh. I know you can't make backup sleep, but it seems to help. And, um, you know, 
it, it is really good ultra training because yeah. I'm up for days at a time. So, you know, it's like, uh, when I'm really, really tired in, in the middle of an ultra, I just kind of think like, you know, I can, I can do hard things when I'm really, really tired. Cause I do yeah. it at work. Yeah. Yeah. I asked Brad Stolberg about that. Cause I find that to be one of the more interesting things about ultra marathon running, where it's like, it's this situation where maybe, maybe you're the exception to this actually, now that I think about it, but like, you really can't mimic race day in training to a large enough degree to really go for the paces the way you could for like a shorter distance race or like a time limited game where you can kind of simulate the experience sometimes on a routine enough basis where when you get there, it's like, all right, I've done this dress rehearsal that has shown me what happens at this point or that point. And you can kind of get a little more intuitive, get into a little more of a flow state because of that. Whereas with like something like a hundred milers, like a hundred miler, it's just like in training, you're not probably going to get anywhere near a hundred miles in one shot. So you're sort of left at this situation where from a physical standpoint, it's not optimal to go out and say, just run a hundred miles to be ready for your hundred miler. But from a mental standpoint, knowing what it's like to go through those paces can be very useful. So I always find like, what are some areas in life where you can train the mental side of a hundred mile race without actually doing the physical part of it? And if you can balance that right, then you get to that point where like, okay, I'm 70, 80 miles into this ultra marathon. Yeah, I'm tired, but mentally I had enough going on in my day-to-day life that I had to manage where this doesn't seem that unmanageable because navigating long hours mentally day in and day out isn't foreign to me. And when I think of just like professionalization of sport, I find that to maybe be something that would be a disadvantage for somebody who would be like, Hey, I want to be a pro ultra marathon runner to the degree where they're doing nothing but kind of training and sleeping and eating to the degree what you might see in other professions. I don't know that that's necessarily the best path forward for most people. I mean, I think I, I do like a couple things. Uh, one is like, I work normally like my shift is like two days, so 48 hours. And so say I don't get a whole lot of sleep for those 48 hours. I always um, come home and force myself to go for like uh, like a 15 mile run. And so I'm like, just totally sleepy and very exhausted. And I feel like that sort of mimics those like mile 80 like feelings. Mm-hmm. Um which I know the average person cannot do that. But, um, and then the other thing that, I mean, I, I find that if you do like, they don't have to be like really like high mileage, but like, if you do like back-to-back 20 mile days, um, like the second day, you're, it's similar to like, you know, mile 80 legs, you know, like, especially if you're not, I mean, not me because I'm used to running 20 miles every day, but before I did the, the streak, I would do like back-to-back long runs like that. And like the second day was always like mimicking like the later stages in the ultra. So it's like, you kind of, you know, it's hard to know what mile 80 feels like until you're at mile 80. But I, I think it's similar. Like if you try to do back-to-back long runs and then another thing I do, which I, I always tell people, I don't recommend doing what I do, but one of the things I do is I try to run most of my runs with no food or water. And I try to like make myself bonk and then I try to push myself through the bonk. Um, and then on race day, I give myself tons of food and water. And so I feel like super strong 
But if I get to a point where something happens where I don't have enough food or water, like I know how to push through it mm -hmm. um, because I've like sort of trained that way. Normally when I do that, it's, it's runs that are under three hours. When, when I go above three hours then I'll, then I'll start adding more food and water. But, um, and it's helped me out a lot because I've had a, like race situations where I ran out of water, you know, I fell and popped a water bottle and didn't have enough water. I forgot to like, you know, put food in my pack at an aid station. Don't ask me. I mean, I, you know, you make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it helped me like mentally get through those like really low points because I, I sort of knew how to, to like handle it. Cause I, cause I do it like normally when I train, but mm -hmm. th those are three things I do to try to mimic like, you know, hard points and ultras, but cause you can't go run a hundred miles. Well, I mean, you can, but you know, it, and that, and then I just, I always tell people like, if you, you know, run ultras to train for ultras, like, because like if you're doing 50 Ks, like you're going to like figure out your nutrition and your hydration plan. And then you just kind of have to spread it out. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there, there's a lot of value in doing the smaller distance ultras to get ready for like the bigger ones. And, and the, and the biggest thing is just figuring out, you know, your, your nutrition and hydration plan. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's the hardest thing about ultras is is everybody wants like a simple answer. Like, what do you eat? What do you drink? What do you, what electrolytes do you use? And like, everybody's different. You know, you, you've talked about it a bunch. Like, you know, you, you've taken the test to see how much sodium you lose and, and all that. Like everyone's different. It's like I run mm -hmm. with this guy named Ray Sanchez, which I don't know if you know who yeah, he is. I know but, Ray. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like Ray and I are like training, we run, we've run a ton of races together. That dude takes more salt than I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> I mean, he's like, he has all these protocols. He tells me, he's like, you crack it in your mouth. And if you can taste it, then, then you have enough salt. But if you can't taste it, then you need more. And he does all this stuff. Meanwhile, I will like run a hundred miler and take no salt in, really? um, you know, I mean, unless it's super hot, like, yeah, I don't take any salt pills or anything. I just like get it, get it through my food. Mm. So, but you know, everyone's different and like, yeah. there's no, there's no right answer. You know, you got to like kind of figure out who, who you are and what, you know, what your body needs. Yeah. You know? Have you gotten your sodium test done? I, I haven't. I, I need, I, I have a couple of friends that are doing it right now and I, I need to just like get, get together with them and, and check it out. Yeah. Um, I did interested bad water and, and I DNF bad water cause I had an electrolyte problem. And so before I go back and redo bad water <laughs> and finish it, I'm going to, I'm going to get it done so that I like, get a good plan like on the books you know mm -hmm. um but yeah it's an interesting topic because i think when you do first understand the spectrum that you're dealing with where it's like you could i mean my guess is you maybe are in the extreme low end where like you maybe only lose two three hundred milligrams of sodium per liter which you can go a long ways with a salty day leading into a race if you're only losing two to three hundred milligrams per liter and it may take an event like bad water for you to really start seeing the repercussions versus sounds like somebody like Ray or like Andy Blow, who I had on the podcast, who's losing over a gram, two grams per, per liter. It's just like, that's just a night and day difference. And I wonder sometimes with just the way sports select for success, like I would imagine like, like ultra runners maybe trend a little lower just in general, because like at the end of the day, there's only so much you can you can get in and process. So if your body requires more to process, 
then, you know, you may just have this uphill battle that other, that your competition isn't going to have. And then on average, you're going to be less likely to be successful than them, like how sports select in other areas as well. But it's an interesting topic. I'd be really fascinated to hear what yours comes back at it. My bet is on the two to 300 milligrams per hour. <laughs> and the thing is, I'm like, I'm not a huge sweater, you know, mm -hmm. like some people like just like sweat like crazy, unless it's like in the nineties, like my body does not, like, I'm not just a, I'm not a big sweater. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm not like losing a bunch of, of fluid or anything out of my, out of my body. Hmm. So, but you know, with bad water, it's so hot. And I'm sure it was so hot uh, at your race this weekend. Like the sweat is probably like evaporating before it actually cools you down. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, wasn't your race like 112 degrees? Like that's, yeah. That's, but, but it's humid though. Was it humid? It was humid. So it was a weird situation where like, yeah, you had like, I think it hit 114 was the real feel. I didn't see what the humidity was at, but it was, I mean, you can sort of tell just by how, what your clothes are doing, where like, if it's a dry heat, like in Phoenix, where like you get back from the run, I'm like, did I even sweat? And then you realize, oh yeah, I lost right. five pounds worth of, with, with the fluids. Yeah. Whereas like this one, it's like everything is drenched. So like, you know, there's enough humidity in the air where it's just not evaporating quickly. And, you know, for me, that just means like, how do you behave in that environment versus the other? And it's like, in those humid environments, it's just like, if I can get as much skin exposed as possible, as much as you can get away with, it's like, that's going to be like the best thing you can do in terms of cooling. Cause you have a little bit of airflow hitting that and creating sort of a, a hack to what would be evaporative cooling versus the dry stuff where, yeah, you just let the evaporative cooling do its thing. And even maybe a layer over your skin is probably going to be helpful. Yeah. It's interesting though. Yeah. So it'd be fun to see what, what your numbers come back on. Um, so you, you're, you thinking about bad water again, I guess if you DNF, you probably I have mean, that on the short list. Yeah. <laughs> eventually I will. It's so expensive, you know, it's like yeah. mm -hmm. part of me is just thinks about doing it outside of the race, you mm -hmm. know, just, you know, cause it's like, I don't care about buckles and all that stuff. So it's like, mm -hmm. I can just go out there and run it and just like, you know, get the same, get the same feel. Yeah. You know, yeah, I've, but, thought of, I've thought about something like that too, just because like Badwater was a race that I learned about early in ultra running when I first got aware of the sport. So it was kind of one of those that I put up on a pedestal early on before I knew much. But then the more I looked into it, the more I started to realize it basically kind of is this thing where who can build the best microclimate around their runner <laughs> to sort right. of remove yeah. them from the environment which they're trying to participate in. So it's like, yeah, if you throw a ton of money at it, you can have someone following you around building a microclimate around you the entire time versus if you just show up by yourself. Well, I, does anyone, do you have to have a crew at Badwater? I don't even remember. Um, I, you do it in the actual rate in the race, you have to have like a crew and everything, but there's been quite a few people that have gone out and like had like a cart behind them and carried everything they needed. But I mean, even if I had like a car with me, like if you think about it, you're spending all this money yeah, and all you get is a buckle. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, there's like, the, there's no aid stations. There's no nothing. Like mm -hmm. the race is like, you have crew and your crew supports you. And your crew gets you to the finish line and then you get a buckle, mm -hmm. but it's like thousands of dollars. And it's like this hard process to get in and, you know, all this stuff where it's like, I mean, I've done a lot of like solo hundred milers and races that are, you know, I, I, I just don't need all the, if somebody's just going to follow me anyways, then why do I need to spend thousands of dollars to yeah. like, 
<laughs> I could have a buckle made for $2,000, right. a solid gold. You know a very I mean? nice one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's me getting a little salty when it comes to like, you know, the whole ultra running and how expensive everything's getting. But um, yeah, I, 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 you know, if I fail at a race, I tend to try to go back and, you know, like finish it. Although there, there's some that I won't do that because I, I was like so dangerous, but um, in general, yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting with the ultra, how ultra running has kind of evolved over the years where it certainly has a commercial component to it now, especially at some of the big name races. The thing I find interesting about is since like ultra kind of did get popular as sort of this like off the grid, I guess maybe the way to think about it is the trail aspect of ultra got popular very quickly in a short period of time, whereas some of the older events, like the timed events and things like that, that have been around longer, just didn't see that growth to nearly the degree. So you sort of have this situation where I think like, I always wonder, like, let's say, because the big topic is now is like all the UTMB stuff, how it's going to like make everything kind of like corporate and marketing based and things like that, which obviously brings a lot of attention and a lot of money into the sport. And I always wonder about that, where it's like, if you're someone who doesn't know about ultra yet and you see UTMB is probably the most likely race that's going to catch your attention and show you there's this world out here of people running a hundred miles or whatever it happens to be from there, you can go so many different directions where I wonder if we will see like a preservation or a bit of an upswing with just some of these smaller local races too, where it's like people who they get interested in the sport realize, oh yeah, I just have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars just to get into UTMB, much less actually doing the race. Or I could just show up to this local hundred miler that has 150 runners for like 150 bucks and get the same experience more or less of going through that process. I wonder if we'll see some upgrowth with that too, along the way, just because of relative like ability to be able to do some of these type of things. I mean, I hope so. I, I, I love them both. I love UTMB and I, and I, and I think that our sport does need the corporate aspect because, you know, money brings, you know, more, like you said, more attention. It also brings more gear, it brings, you know, sponsors to the professionals and all that stuff. Like, you got to have money flowing into the sport. So somehow, and and you're going to do that through like a corporate type race, like UTMB. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think the local races are just as fun. And like, um, you know, a lot of times have a lot more to offer, especially the ones that have been going on for a long time that have like the same volunteers every year. Yeah. And like, you know, have like, I, I just did Bighorn like a few uh, months ago, which is in Wyoming and they've been doing it for 30 years. And it's amazing. Like the aid stations were like, you know, it's all the local Wyoming people. There's an aid station where they like ride their horses in because there's no other way to get to this aid station. And they set up this amazing aid station out in the middle of the mountains, you know, that there's no roads or anything to get there. They had to like literally ride their horses to to, to set up the aid station. I mean, that's, that's got a really cool vibe, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're not going to get at like a UTMB event or UTMB. Yeah. Sorry. So, um, but you know, I mean, we need money to flow in this, into this sport and we need like, you know, I mean like what Jamel's doing with Aravipa, like 
putting it all on YouTube and, and stuff like that. I think that's really, really great as well because uh, we need people to see it. Um, mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time, you know, making videos that the younger generation has seen. And um, I think that's, you know, like we also have to bring like young people into our sport, you know, and we have to like educate them that our sport exists. We have to educate them that it's, fun type two fun but fun um and like all, all that kind of goes together with like marketing and you know the internet and all that sort of stuff like i mean the big events are cool but like you know the the, the video i've gotten the most views on was jackpot and that was just yeah. literally us running a loop a mile loop right and it's it's still like you know I don't think it matters like that. It was a small, a small event compared to like a UTMB, mm -hmm. you know, by the way, have you ever seen my, uh, my jackpot video on TikTok? On TikTok? No, I don't. I think I saw your one on Instagram. So on TikTok, I, I have a longer one. It's like, it has like 15 million views. Oh really? And, wow. <laughs> and, and I talk about you a bunch in it and, and there's like, I don't even know how many, like 50,000 comments or something. It's, it, it went super viral and everyone's all super concerned about you. <laughs> because like I'm like man, he's gonna do 12 hours because you'd lap me so many times, and then all of a sudden you were just like not like just in the gone. race anymore. Yeah. And then everyone's like, "What happened to Zach?" <laughs> like you know, it was like the the comments were like crazy, and then people were like informing me, "Oh, he yeah, something happened." Like da da da. It was just like I was like, "This is hilarious," but you yeah, know. yeah. So That's funny. yeah, it was like it like I'm on TikTok. I'm huge, which is interesting because it's like it's it's that young young generation that knows very little about ultras, but then I've been at all these ultras and all these young kids are running it. And they're like, I, I saw your TikTok and I got inspired. And I just like, I went to the Goodwill and I got this backpack and like, they just signed up for the race and just were like running an ultra. And I was like, man, this is pretty cool. Like, you know, cause I didn't learn about ultras until I was like in my thirties. So, mm -hmm. you know, to, to be educating a, a whole younger generation, I think is like, is important, mm -hmm. which will also bring more money to our sport. And then, you know, more interest. Yeah. I mean, you've certainly, it'd be interesting to know if you could quantify how many people you've probably introduced to the sport or like literally were the reason someone joined. I'm sure it's like massive uh, based on kind of your social media stuff, which I find to be, like you said, it's, it's, it's awesome because I think some people will maybe look at it. I'm sure you've seen everything from positive to negative with, with, with that sort of stuff. And like, you know, some people will say like, oh, what you're doing is over the top. It's unsustainable. And you get that rhetoric and they think it's like deterring people. Whereas when I see it, I think, no, no, like nobody's looking at what you're doing on TikTok or Instagram and thinking, oh, well, in order for me to be able to do an ultra marathon, I have to start doing exactly what Andy's doing and running these like hundred mile weeks, 200 miles, 300, mi 400 yeah, mile weeks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not thinking that they're thinking if Andy can run 350 miles in a short time frame, then certainly I can do a 50 K. Whereas before they'd maybe be like me when I didn't think a 90 mile week was possible. They're thinking, Oh, well, 50 K is certainly achievable. If, if Andy's out there running hundred milers back to back and things like that. And then that's what gets them in and interested, gets them active. And then who knows where they go from there. So I find it to be like such a huge net positive and hopefully you get that sort of feedback. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of positive. And honestly, a lot of the people that follow me are just 
running five K's and 10 K's and, you know, they're just starting to run. And it's like, I think they look to me for sort of like a motivational thing where it's like, they want to take the day off and be lazy, but then yeah. they see me, Oh, I'm out running again. And you know, and then they, they get off their, their couch and, and go for a mile run or a mile walk or something like that. And, you know, that's at the end of the day, I'm just trying to get people to be more active because it saved my life. And so, you know, to give back, like, I hope that I can inspire more people to, you know, save their own lives or make their own lives better. Mm -hmm. um, cause I, cause I know it's possible. Yeah. It just takes hard work and it takes consistency and, you know, all the things that everybody says you got to do, but it, it really is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the way I would summarize it is I find it incredibly unlikely someone is going to find you and then accidentally end up running a hundred miles in a, in a dangerous way versus them finding you and deciding, you know what, I'm not going to skip that five mile run today. They're probably going to just right. get out and do their five mile run and be better yeah. for it. So, but, um, I, but I do have a lot of people that have run ultras because of me and, yeah, and yeah, I no love doubt. that, you know, it's great, you know, all over the, the whole, and the, the thing about social media, which is so cool is it's like literally all over the world. Like, you know, mm -hmm. like there was just a big, and, and they're always telling me what's going on. So it's like, there's just a big hundred miler in Germany, which I never heard of. Like it's called like the Berlin wall hundred and like all these, all my followers went and ran it. And it was like, then they're sending me pictures and like all this, it's like so cool. It's like, yeah. you know, maybe someday I'll go out there and run that ultra, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's like you crowdsource the, the, the exciting stuff more or less at that point. Yeah. Yeah. What's next for you, Andy? I've heard rumors of UTMB, but I'm sure there's probably something before that. No, just UTMB. It's in, it's only in like, uh, it's on the first. So that's true. That's really coming up now. Yeah, I, I, my mind weeks. is still in June. <laughs> it's yeah. this year's going by so fast. Uh, yeah. UTMB. And, and I'm like, um, I don't know. I'm just training like crazy. I, I have an 11,500 foot mountain and like, like close by. And so I've been running it every day. I'm five days in a row and it's, I'm going to try to run it all the way up until like, pretty close to UTMB just to like really get the vert and the it's nine miles up nine miles down with like right around 6,000 feet of vert so it like it puts some hair on your chest yeah no kidding yeah I, I miss it but when we now that we're in Austin we don't have anything quite like this but we were in Phoenix we were a little less than an hour drive from this spot called Mount Ord where it was a seven and a half mile climb that was about 5,000 feet so you could just go up that and down it and then if you were really looking for some ultra level long run stuff you do it twice and could get almost 10k avert in a day and 30 mile long run is like that was such a convenient spot to to go and rack that stuff up yeah well I, what i think with utmb like what i've because i've done it three times the hard part is the downhill you know mm -hmm. it's not necessarily like yeah it's thirty three thousand feet of climbing but that downhill just wrecks you and so like when i'm doing this it's it's more to like run nine miles downhill you know, cause yeah. I, I think that's, that's the hard part in any, any race like that is it's 33,000 feet of, you know, ascent, but it's also 33,000 feet of descent. Yep. So, and it's, and it's technical and, you know, there's step downs and all, you know, Rocky and all this stuff. So I got to get my quads ready. No kidding. It's an insane amount of eccentric load. And that's what, that's what makes you sore the next day. <laughs> yes exactly exactly not so, you've probably normalized sort of such a higher degree but it's uh definitely something worth preparing for when you're doing utmb well i've had my quads give out in, in a hundred miler before and so i i never want that to happen again whereas like i just couldn't run downhill because i just had blown them out 
So, you know, I, that's a, that's a bad feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the, do you have like a point, like a week where you're like, that was the closest I got to missing the streak because of this, that, or the other thing? I've had, uh, had like three weeks out of the three years where I got really sick. Um, last year after UTMB, I got really sick. I probably got COVID. I never got tested, but for two weeks I had like no energy. Mm. Um, it was no respiratory anything, but I was just like really, really low energy and it was really hard to get the hundred miles. And then a couple of weeks ago, I actually got really sick again. And like, same thing. It was like, I think I got like 101 miles or like 102 miles. And it was like, I was sleeping 18 hours a day. I was so sick. Um, but luckily I was at the beach and everything was flat and it was sea level. And I just like, it was just ran flat on the beach every morning, but it, it was super hard. Oh man. So, yeah, I can't imagine. Like I've had some, I have the stomach flu bad enough before where just the idea of getting out of bed is just so past my imagination. I can't imagine like yeah. trying to do a hundred miles in that week. Yeah. That, I hadn't really thought of that. I was thinking more along the line of just like a, a nagging injury or something, but yeah, getting in some sort of like illness would probably be the biggest deterrent for the most part. I've, I mean, I, I fell and broke some ribs. I like that kind of sucked. Cause you know, you can't take a deep breath. Mm. I like, I had a wall fall on me at work in a fire and I like hurt my ankle and I got like cellulitis in my ankle and had to take oh. antibiotics that wasn't such a fun week. I mean, it's been three years, so I've had all, I've torn my hamstring three times. <laughs> I, I, I've had so many, like, you know, and I always tell people, well, don't do what I do. You know, it's like, everyone's like, well, what do you do when you get injured? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you, but obviously the streak continues. So what yeah, do you think yeah. I do? You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't, it, I don't do what I do. Yeah. That's like my number, every podcast, everything on my social media, I always tell people, don't do what I do. Just, you know just be inspired or whatever you need to do, but don't, don't try to mimic what I'm doing. Cause it's, it's not smart. Well, if they follow your advice and <laughs> they, uh, if, if they follow the, if you're not smiling, you're doing it wrong. Chances are they'll stop smiling before they get to the running a hundred miles with a torn hamstring and, and, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, exactly. and end up following the don't do it. I do advice along the way. Exactly. Awesome. Andy. So I mean, it's been awesome to chat with you and kind of hear a little bit more about just kind of everything that goes into your, your, your lifestyle and everything like that. Uh, if you have anything you want to share with the listeners, feel free to do it. Otherwise, uh, if you could let us know where we can find you on social media so people can, if they're not already, give you a follow and see right, everything right. that goes into it. So I'm just AM Glaze at, uh, for Instagram and then Glaze runs on TikTok. Um, yeah, I mean... I'm super, I was super pumped about this. I'm like, you know, I've been a big fan of you for a long time. Obviously you're like, you know, a legend in the sport. So it's, it's cool to, to chat with you. And uh, yeah, like, I'm sure uh, we, I, like I said, in our DMS, like I've raced with you three times, so I'm sure we'll have other races yeah. uh, in the future. Yeah. Um, we'll have to and, cross and, paths. And thank you for DNFing Kuyamaka because I ended up podium that race. I would have <laughs> got fourth place if you hadn't cracked your head open. So <laughs> <laughs> not that I wanted you to crack your head open, but thank you for doing that. So that yeah, I could, well, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I that there was some good purpose that that's actually a, <laughs> that, that that's a, a story in and of itself for sure. I think I was like six days removed from a hundred K over in China and I was doing Kayamaka. I mean, I should have just done it 
really low key to get a Western. I just needed a Western States qualifier. That's right. why I decided yeah. to do it. And of course though, like, you know, I decided to try to race it instead of just get to the finish line and find myself cracking my head on a rock. And uh, the funny thing about it though, was they bandaged me up at that aid station up there and then took me back down. And after a few hours, they confirmed I wasn't concussed and they could let me go. So like maybe three, four hours after I left, I was living up in Sacramento Davis area at the time. So I had pre-planned that I was going to drive and stay in Bakersfield, which is like midway that right. day, assuming I was going to be running till like mid late afternoon and then get up the next morning, do the rest of the drive. So I already had the hotel and everything. So I just went to the hotel at Bakerfield and was like, let's see how bad this, I take the bandage off and the gash was so big. I just like went straight to the ER. <laughs> that race is technical and it's got yeah. like lots of rocks. I mean, it's, yeah, it's no joke. Mm -hmm. Like when they, when they told me you fell, I was like, yeah, I can see that. I, yeah. you know, it's, that's a, that's a rough race at certain points. It, it was one of those where it's like, I, I describe it as like, when you fall on a trail, there's like usually two ways. One, it's where it's like this slow motion fall where you realize as you're falling that you screwed up and you're just like cursing yourself as you're proceeding towards the ground. And then there's the falls where you don't realize what happened until you're on the ground and you're like, oh shoot, I just fell. And it was one yeah. of those latter ones where I was like, I didn't know what happened until I was on the ground. And then I, I the only thing I remembered was my head hitting the rock. So then I immediately grabbed my, my bandana and like put it over there and realized there was a lot of blood there. It's like, all right, we're going back to the aid station. <laughs> yeah. Well, heads bleed like crazy. They do. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had a pole break and, and, and like went straight into a rock, you know, and it was oh, like, it happened yeah. so quick. And yeah. then, yeah. So I, I feel you, man. Awesome. Well, Andy, thanks so much <laughs> for, for coming on and uh, I'll have to have you back on down the road when uh, I mean, you'll, you probably could come on every week and share new stories, but it's uh, uh <laughs> it's always fun wow. to hear hear what people like yourself are up to yeah i appreciate you having me on thank you take care thanks for tuning into this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with zach bitter 